Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that matter that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The next voice you'll hear is that of Sean Spear in conversation with our guest. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Jan Werner Muller, a political philosopher at Princeton University and author of several books, including his most recent one, Democracy Rules, which sets out the basic case for democracy at a moment when it's deeply needed. Jan, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues, and congratulations on the book. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the congrats. A common yet somewhat contradictory narrative in popular discourse is that democracy is in crisis, and the source of the crisis is one of two forces. The first is the rise of populism, which implies a political movement of ordinary citizens motivated by anger, frustration, and even intolerance. Or a second, which is a small yet powerful elite who are the winners in the modern economy. So just to start, how can we reconcile these competing claims about the state of our democracy And do you think modern democracy is in crisis? Allow me to say two things. First of all, I beg to differ from the conventional understanding of populism as involving so-called ordinary people, as if there were really any others, basically finding fault with the powerful. I think up until quite recently, actually, any old civic educator would have told us that uh, citizens keeping an eye on the powerful is not somehow something dangerous or something that puts democracy into crisis. Uh, Quite on the contrary, it would have been a sign of being a good democratic citizen. And for me, populism refers much more to those who essentially claim that they, and only they, represent what they often refer to as the real people or also very typically the silent majority. So populism doesn't really have to involve large numbers of people. It's much more about leaders or parties making a claim to what you may call a certain monopoly of representing the people. And if you sort of follow that logic, then it's also not uh, so surprising anymore that very often, not always, I hasten to add, populist leaders, when they lose an election, you know, some of us might think of recent examples, basically don't accept that. Because if you take this notion of a silent majority seriously, then by definition, if the only unique representative of the silent majority doesn't win, it implies that we're not so much talking about a silent majority, but a silenced majority. So somebody or something must have prevented the real people from expressing themselves. And as hopefully you can see, you're very quickly on a kind of slippery slope towards claims about fraud and, you know, this can't really be happening and so on. Again, I'm not saying that this inevitably happens, but there is a reason why it very often happens with populists who lose elections. Second remark, if I may, 
So there's some truth in both the kind of diagnoses that you put that you put forward. I'm, I wouldn't say that they're completely wrong. At the same time, as different as they are, you know, one basically blames the many, the other one blames the few. Nevertheless, they do have one thing in common, which is that they essentially focus on groups of people, you know, a smaller group and a larger group. And what both diagnoses, I would say, tend to miss is a focus on institutions, which, you know, is not exactly a wildly original point to say that they play a crucial role in democracies. And so I think we should we should move away from what especially among liberals in the widest sense of that term, term has, I think, been an unfortunate tendency to basically go back to what you might call sort of cliches from 19th century mass psychology, you know, the great unwashed, they're all irrational, they're all waiting to be seduced by the great demagogue and so on. I mean, things which a lot of people, a lot of liberals would not have said in polite society. And all of a sudden after 2016, it's completely okay, it seems, to talk like that about our fellow citizens. And I think that's basically wrong. The tendency to also find fault with the powerful I think is more justified, but in and of itself also doesn't get us very far. I mean, this is, again, a sort of typical populist talk where we say, oh, they're all corrupt, they're bad characters. This doesn't help us, this doesn't help us much. And plus, it's not exactly new. I mean, people are not sort of somehow more corrupt uh, than they were 10, 20, 30, 50 years ago, and, and so on. So my plea is to refocus on institutions and, you know, not sort of always just talk about groups, be it the many or be it the few. I'll come back to your observations about institutions, which really run deeply throughout the book. Um, but before I do, to follow up on my question, another key idea in your book is what you describe as a double secession from contemporary politics. What is the double secession and how does it relate to these broader trends? So the double secession is not symmetrical. On the one hand, it refers to, for shorthand, to put it crudely but not inaccurately, uh, the wealthiest, the most powerful, those who can essentially afford to take themselves out of a shared social contract. And, you know, that as, you know, as, as well-known examples illustrate, that can literally mean, okay, um, I have a backup, I have a backup life in New Zealand, or I find ways of manipulating the political system to my, to my advantage, or as some of our colleagues in social sciences have been putting it, I can basically afford the services of what is sometimes known as the wealth defense industry. So, you know, if I have enough cash to spare to afford that, you know, Cayman Islands uh, account, I really am looking at very different tax rates than anybody else. I mean, just maybe remember Mitt Romney about a decade ago, people were shocked to learn how much tax he actually pays. But to get to that, you basically have to have a lot of cash to spare to afford you know, the necessary lawyers and accountants. Again, I'm putting it very crudely, very polemically, but just to get the main main point across. The other secession, though, is not about the powerful. It's not about those who, you know, take themselves out of a common social contract because they really have other options. It's the opposite. It's those who are basically despairing in certain ways, who feel that there are no options for them anymore in existing party systems. It's not really worth to go out there and vote and that, in turn, can cause a sort of really vicious, vicious um, cycle because parties don't tend to care about those who don't vote at all. I mean, why appeal to them? Why try to reach them? So those who don't participate anymore 
are also on a kind of downward slope towards a potentially ever worse off ever worse off situation and they in a sense also secede but in this case for very very different reasons than those at the very top let me just ask one big picture question before we delve more deeply into the book a big part of contemporary political discourse is lament about polarization And yet you argue in the book that one of the problems with this prevailing narrative is that it neglects the fact that politics is fundamentally involves conflict about competing values and priorities. You want to just talk a bit about how we ought to think and talk about the role of politics in a liberal pluralistic democracy. I think it's a problem with our political discourse that we have to listen to so much, if you permit, again, a rather polemical formulation, so much kitschy communitarianism, which pretends that if only we could all come together, if only we found a nice form of patriotism, uh, then, you know, all would be well. Democracy isn't about consensus. Democracy is about conflict. Conflict is legitimate. It needs to be contained. It needs to be compatible with basic democratic principles such as freedom and equality. So I'm not saying we should celebrate conflict or accept that, you know, any sort of uh, instance of people going at each other is automatically good. Absolutely not. But it's really not a terribly new insight to say that if conflict is done the right way, it can actually in certain ways strengthen cohesion in a democracy. Not in the sense that in the end everybody will agree, that's not an expectation that's going to be fulfilled. But if there's a sense that, yes, you know, we can we can fight over certain things, but we can also accept the outcomes. We can give, you know, what unfortunately has become a rare commodity in a number of democracies, namely losers' consent, because people have the chance, you know, they can retable the conflict, they have another chance to fight the battle. Then, actually, the institutions of democracy can be strengthened. But I hasten to add, and forgive me if I'm in, in danger of slipping into lecture mode here, Um, I hasten to add that it's also an art to make conflict compatible with democracy. And let me just mention two important, if you like, boundaries or borders here that have have to be observed. One is that in a conflict, you should not deny the basic standing of your adversaries. This is, again, what I think right wing populists in particular tend to do. They basically say, if you just think about uh, Trump as a, as, a, as a not exactly unusual example, that it's not really even worth defending your positions, uh, your policies vis-a-vis your adversaries. Uh, you just from the get-go say they're un-American. They should go back to their shithole countries, if I may quote that, that, that infamous, infamous line. If you do that, you can't really get into a kind of conflict where you might possibly respect and recognize the other as, you know, holding a different view, of course, um, but ultimately also as a kind of partner in a sort of shared democratic enterprise. That becomes impossible because the others don't really belong here to begin with. They have no standing. And secondly, and, you know, if any journalist is listening, I, I know there's a danger that they're going to sort of burst out laughing, laughing because it can sound so naive. But nevertheless, I'll make the point that you also do need some sense of shared facts, we know this is very different. We know that you know f- the facts don't exactly speak for themselves. None of us has ever heard the facts speak. Nevertheless, to get into a productive conflict that might possibly strengthen democracy at the end, 
We can't be in a situation where I table a certain problem and you tell me, look, this doesn't even exist. There's nothing happening with climate, for instance. If that's the case, we also have nothing in common. We have nothing to argue about, really. And the potentially productive sort of side of conflict cannot really come out. So again, I think it's important to move away from a, a stance that constantly tells us, oh, only if everything is calm and civil and everybody always agrees on everything is a democracy. That's not true. At the same time, it's also not true that any old conflict, you know, fought in whatever way, is necessarily beneficial. But that we've seen so often in recent years that that's really not sort of the unusual thing to say nowadays. To pick up on that answer, if the 1980s and 1990s were in part trying to resolve technocratic questions about optimal tax rates, the optimal size of government, the best way to structure the global economy. It seems to me these issues lent themselves to a degree of compromise. You could come down somewhere in the middle in terms of optimizing for liberty and equality. And it seems to me that it feels increasingly like one of the challenges with contemporary debates wrapped up in culture and identity is that they don't lend themselves to accommodation or settlement. They're more zero-sum what what do you think of that point? And to the extent that there's something there, what new challenges does it represent for democracies to resolve conflicts without undermining cohesion? Forgive me if I take issue with both points. So I think that if we take technocracy seriously, then I don't think we should we should assume that technocrats are particularly tolerant or ready to compromise. If you know, if, if technocrats on one level tend to say there is only one rational solution to each policy problem, then those who disagree on one level are going to appear as irrational, as, you know, not really understanding the complexity of the world and so on. And maybe on a less obvious note, what we've also seen in a number of countries is a sort of really fateful a kind of dynamic where technocrats, you know, precisely said, look, there's only one solution to certain economic issues or let's say the euro crisis or the financial crisis. And hence, pop and, and then populists very often said, wait a minute, democracy without the people, democracy without choices, that can't be right. So technocrats in a certain way have helped populists. When populists then succeeded, they in turn have actually helped technocrats because if you elect Trump or Bolsonaro or figures like this, you know, technocrats are going to say, look, you let the people speak and they elect completely incompetent amateurs and they only make everything worse. And so they can, in a perverse sense, help each other. But what's more, even though they look so different, they also ultimately do have one thing in common. They're both forms of what I would call anti-pluralism. The technocrat says only one correct solution. You disagree. You reveal yourself to be irrational. Populist says only one authentic understanding of the popular will. And by the way, only we understand it. If you disagree, you reveal yourself to be a traitor to the people. So I think that dynamic we've seen in a number of democracies, and I think it's bad for democracy. Second point, yes, many people assume that so we have it more difficult than previous eras because we tend to talk more about cultural identity and, and so on. I'm not so sure that this contrast ultimately really is, is, is plausible. For one thing, it's not so obvious that identities are somehow given, are somehow quasi-natural, unchangeable. People, you know, look at themselves from different perspectives and in different lights and in light of new experiences all the time. And in certain ways, it's not so difficult 
to think of yourself differently in light of new information, new experiences, sometimes listening to, you know, particular victims, which I know, I know nowadays tends to get derided as, oh, this is, you know, I, I hate to even use the term, but woke or something that, you know, is, is very problematic. But when you think about it, this happens all the time. And in many cases, people actually can construct a narrative around these experiences that is not obviously seen as loss or something that couldn't possibly be open to, to compromise. I think we've kind of forgotten that when the chips are down, people are not really terribly interested in compromising on material interests. If you think about the 20th century, there are plenty of examples of, you know, groups of people who said, look, you know, yeah, okay, we can compromise up to a certain point. But, you know, only up to that certain point. And after that point, we're going to defend our material possessions with whatever we've got. So it's true that there was a certain period when it seemed like a, very broadly speaking, social democratic settlement had been reached under particular conditions. You know, high growth, high productivity, high wages, still high enough profits for, for, uh, for certain groups as well. But that was kind of unusual. And in many ways, the much more typical thing was, well, you know, people are going to fight very hard for protection of their, of their material, material interests. Plus, last thing, if I, if I may, it's also not quite true that when you think of, you know, you know, recent movements, which are often subsumed under, again, quote unquote, and I use the term also with a certain hesitancy, identity politics, that these issues are completely, you know, divorced from questions of distribution. So just think of, you know, Black Lives Matter or Me Too. These were not really about telling people that we now must understand particular identities, you know, in all their complexity, which, you know, in many ways we couldn't really do anyway. They were basically just saying, look, there are certain rights, which for certain groups are not real. For some people, it's, it is a real right not to be harassed, let alone be shot by the police. For some people, it's not. For some people, it's it, it it's taken as a given that your, let's say, superiors are not going to harass you in the workplace, let alone rape you. And for some people, that was not true. So to think that this is sort of purely about identity, as opposed to saying, let's basically distribute rights effectively, including many rights that already exist, that are not really in dispute, I think, in a, in a sense, is a question of distribution. And is not really ultimately a question of identity or something that couldn't be sort of talked about rationally or that people couldn't meaningfully deliberate about. Again, that's not to say that there aren't going to be losers in these processes. It's not like, okay, everybody's going to immediately agree as soon as you as soon as you set things up, set set things up this way. But I think we're not doing ourselves a favor if we basically constantly pity ourselves and say, oh, it's so difficult for us now because of all this crazy culture war stuff and identity. And if only all these people sh you know, were to shut up again, then it would be so much easier because all we'd ever be talking about were wages and you know, better working conditions and, and so on and so forth. I don't, I don't think that's a helpful way of looking at things. You're one click away from getting access to all The Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. 
My next question is a somewhat different track, but I, I've wanted to ask you it ever since we scheduled uh, today's interview. You're a scholar of the controversial German thinker Carl Schmitt. Um, there seems to be something of a Schmittian revival in certain intellectual circles questioning the efficacy of democracy. What do you attribute that to? And what, if anything, does it tell us about the current state of our political debates? It potentially tells us quite a lot. I would emphasize that Schmidt himself considered his thinking as primarily anti-liberal and that he in the interwar period also deployed a very particular understanding of democracy that occasionally also shows up among, to put it bluntly, far-right populist actors, both politicians and intellectuals. It involves the kind of operation I was alluding to earlier. So there is what Schmidt derided as this merely quantitative statistical approach to democracy where, God forbid, we count votes one by one, and then we're going to have a number at the end, and that's going to tell us who won the election. Schmidt already in the 20s deployed a different understanding of democracy. He invoked a kind of mystical mystical people who could have a sort of authentic will, and that he thought was much superior to this, you know, boring quantitative statistical approach. And the invocation of this sort of mystical real will of a supposedly real people, that has also been pushed by plenty of far-right populist politicians and intellectuals and intellectuals today. Many of these uh, figures, I'm not telling you anything new, of course, also very explicitly identify as anti-liberal and who argue that in many instances, uh, liberals are always ready to abandon democracy because they want to protect their you know, favorite liberal, liberal preferences. But if you look at, for instance, a very recent election, so Hungary, for instance, uh, this has been celebrated, the outcome has been celebrated by many far-right, far-right intellectuals who never bothered to mention that independent observers all said, well, this wasn't entirely democratic. Uh, this was a fairly free election, but it certainly wasn't fair. Many things happened which are incompatible with baseline understandings of democracy, unless you want to say that, oh, it's already democratic if on the day of the election, the governing party doesn't stuff the ballot boxes with, you know, fake ballots. You have to, you know, take into account many, many other factors, including, you know, free media, effective exercise of basic communicative freedoms and, and many others. So, even though these people think they're actually kind of upholding democracy and deploying it against liberalism, what they're actually are doing is basically reveal that they're quite okay with authoritarianism as long as they get their favorite anti-liberal policy preferences on, you know, take your pick, abortion, certain so-called free speech issues, plenty of stuff, which, you know, again, I hasten to add, are certainly can be up for debate in a democracy. I mean, you can have, you can have meaningful conflicts around, around these, around these issues. I'm not saying that it's somehow prohibited in a democracy to, for instance, make, you know, make the case against immigration or have, you know, a view inspired by Catholic natural law teaching. All that can be, all that can be talked about, all that can be debated. What I think you can't do is say, unless I get my policy preferences, I'm not going to accept the outcomes. Plus, I'm potentially going to fiddle with the democratic process so that I always get my favorite policy outcomes, because that is essentially then on the road to autocracy. Let me ask the, the flip then of that question. You, you alluded earlier to 
what sometimes characterizes a tension between liberalism and democracy. You often hear, for instance, American scholars and politicians emphasize that America is a republic. It's not a democracy. Is there anything to the idea that there's a tension between liberalism and democracy? And how should we think about that tension in the modern age? I agree that we should not collapse democracy and liberalism into each other as if they were entirely the same concept. Certainly, historically, they have been in tension. Depending how you map them out conceptually, they can certainly be in tension. But again, I would insist that the operation we often see today, namely that certain self-consciously anti-liberal experiments, such as in Central and Eastern Europe, are then also sold as particularly democratic, that that is a wrong move. Because basically what the relevant actors do is really to mess with individual rights, which are essential for democracy itself. We can have, you know, an emphasis, for instance, on individual autonomy. That's distinctly liberal in certain ways. We can think of other individual rights, which, again, many people would not agree with, and yet they can be perfectly on board with democracy. We can have many disagreements about what ultimately constitutes a good life, and they can be non-liberal even to some degree explicitly anti-liberal voices in those conversations. And again, I would insist that we should not simply then say, oh, they're just anti-democratic at the same time. But to basically pretend that you can cut down on basic communicative rights such as free assembly, free association, free expression in politics, and still invoke democracy and pretend that you, you can basically have democracy on your side, that I think is fundamentally wrong. Let me ask about one other potential tension in this broader context. How can we, on one hand, affirm ourselves to the principles of liberalism and pluralism, and on the other hand, maintain a common sense of cohesion and purpose in this growing age of diversity and heterogeneity? Is there a risk that uh, the trends towards diversity and heterogeneity comes to be a challenge to the health of democracy? So again, I would I would slightly resist the tendency to invoke a golden age when somehow it was simpler. If you think about some conflicts in the 20th century, uh, just as a, as a more or less random example, in a country that is often held up as a sort of prime example of supposedly homogeneity and hence also all kinds of benefits that supposedly are derived from national homogeneity, I'm thinking of Finland, you know, which always plays a big role in debates on education. It sort of tends to be forgotten that the Finnish civil war was, you know, one of the worst civil wars in European history. And it's very hard to run the argument that somehow, because, you know, people were kind of more the same in one respect, that that also necessarily implied a politics that was more harmonious, somehow easier, and, and so on. So... I would agree with, with, with some of my colleagues who do point to basically the emergence of majority-minority democracies as posing particular challenges. I'm not saying that this is all made up or we shouldn't, we shouldn't give serious consideration to that as, as something that might pose particular challenges. But we should also not be defeatist along the lines of, okay, if you reach somehow too much, let's say, ethnic heterogeneity, your democracy must be in danger somehow – I mean, I feel that I, I shouldn't be lecturing Canadians on some of some of these issues. Uh, it depends on how you deal with it. And again, it depends on how you set up certain conflicts. 
It's again not the case that any tensions or conflicts will spell immediately the end of democracy if you do it in ways that respect basic boundaries of democratic discourse and conduct, it's not true that there's some fundamental or fateful challenge necessarily necessarily involved. Now, obviously, as, as with so many other areas, um, it would also be wrong to pretend that it's, it's all about, you know, people just sort of observing these boundaries. I mean, political theory is, is not about policing boundaries. I mean, it has many, many other important aspects, and I don't want to make it sound like, you know, ideally, the philosopher, you know, patrols the, the borders and constantly tells, oh, you've said the wrong thing, you know, step back from this border. That doesn't exhaust the job of, of, of theory. Plus, even if people are willing to recognize these boundaries, there are many, many other factors in play. So I think sometimes there is an unfortunate tendency to pretend that, you know, some of the problems we are facing today could be fixed with, you know, one unique thing. There's a magical trick or some kind of panacea. And obviously there isn't. We can all think of particular problems, but usually precisely because these are complex problems that look different in different countries, at the risk of saying the obvious, uh, we also do need more complex approaches and not pretend that, oh, if only this one thing were different or if only people were nice enough to respect these boundaries, then all would be all would be well. I'd like to wrap up with a question about Canada and Canada's political culture. But before we do, I, I just have to ask you about uh, the comment you made earlier about the the role of of institutions and intermediary bodies or organizations in your overall thesis. One of the striking things about Donald Trump's rise in American politics is how it demonstrated the weakness of American political parties. He essentially walked into a Republican party with with whom he had virtually no connection and took it over. Now, what do you think has led to the decline of the, the kind of strength and, and capacity of political parties? And what are the importance of political parties in managing the tensions that we've been discussing today? Again, allow me to say two things, if I may. So one is simply that while I, while I agree that we live in a sort of paradoxical age where we do have you know, high levels of partisanship, high levels of polarization, it sort of paradoxically coexists with hollowed out parties. And I agree that there was a problem with the way that Trump could basically enter the Republican Republican field. At the same time, I'm a little, to put it mildly, opposed to this image that we've also occasionally had, that basically the Republican ship of state was gliding along, along nicely on the sea of responsible statecraft. And then this pirate comes along and hijacks this ship and kind of, you know, steers it into the choppy and stormy areas of right-wing populism and so on. Obviously, it's, it's you know, the Republican Party has never been, you know, a completely homogeneous entity. That's not what American parties are like. But I think it's also not a complete, completely crazy thing to say that, in many ways, the party was ready for him. If you think about some of the stuff that Newt Gingrich already said in the 90s, how he talked about his opponents, how he instructed you know, fellow Republicans to basically attack Democrats in certain ways. I mean, this was going in a certain direction. And that undoubtedly, I think, made it much easier for Trump to kind of enter a field that in many ways had been prepared for him, even if, of course, at the same time, it was highly contingent and it could have gone a very, very different way. To the other part of the of the important, but then also difficult question. So I think one of the important characteristics of parties is that they do have robust internal structures. 
And that also means that they allow for a certain internal pluralism, genuine possibilities of internal debate, which I know is going to make many of you listeners tune out because they might remember Oscar Wilde's you know, famous, famous quip where he said the problem with socialism is it takes too many evenings. Touché, accepted. Yes, it's true that, you know, we all know sort of the image of, you know, sort of party activists, you know, policy aficionados, uh, or what some of our colleagues would call political hobbyists, you know, who just love talking about this stuff all night and who also usually are very privileged and, you know, will sit there until 2 a.m. and they usually have their way simply because, you know, nobody else has so much time and can afford to have endless internal debates and so on and so forth. That's all true. At the same time, we've seen what happens if you don't have these processes, if you don't have any kind of internal democracy slash pluralism, because then you also are not going to have anything like a legitimate opposition or what you might call critical loyalty inside a party. I mean, ideally, what people will find is that, of course, they're in the same party because they are committed to similar underlying principles. I mean, debate doesn't mean that, oh, you know, it can go any which way. It's not relativism. But no principle applies itself, so we can have meaningful debates about, you know, policy applications and, and, and how to change, you know, how we understand certain principles in light of new challenges. But if all that is shut down, and if you basically transform a party into a personality cult in the way that Trump de facto ended up doing, then you also are not going to have any internal restraints. And I think it's fair to say that at that point, you're well on the way to January 6th because nobody can hold a leader like that back. It also matters, if I may add one point, it also matters that a party that has become a personality cult really tellingly no longer has a real program. It's not an accident that a lot of right-wing populist parties around the world have basically very autocratic structures. The leader is completely in charge. And at a certain point, they all basically stop publishing new programs. If you think of the Republicans in 2020, they basically said, oh, we we reuse the old program from 2016 and we add that whatever Trump wants, you know, we'll follow. That's not what a real political party does. And it, again, has implications that that should be clear in light of January 6th, because if you don't have a real long-term program, then it's also much harder to say, oh, we can lose this election. Because, you know, we keep going with our program and next time we are going to convince people that our ideas and policies are better. You kind of have a long-term horizon. If, to put it very bluntly, if your horizon is the lifespan of the leader and the leader might already be pretty old, that changes the stakes. That makes it much harder to say, oh, this one we can lose, we'll try again. Again, I, I don't want to sort of idealize it. Of course, nobody likes to lose. And everybody is going to have a hard time accepting that, well, you know, why didn't we convince people, you know, what's wrong, etc. But loser's consent is just incredibly important in functioning democracies. And it just is in and of itself a worrying sign that so many losers keep making noises that basically, you know, call the legitimacy of existing institutions into question. Which, if I may, one last point, if I can add, um, is of course not in and of itself prohibited. But it's a question, again, of how you do it. So if you simply say, it's illegitimate because I lost, that's not a very democratic position. 
if you say, well, there are problems with, you know, our system of campaign finance or gerrymandering, I mean, these are, you know, perfectly, you know, acceptable claims that people can then sort of debate and reject if they if they want to. But it doesn't come down to any notion such as, okay, only I represent, you know, real Americans or real Canadians or whatever. And hence, any outcome that isn't, you know, for me is per se bound to be illegitimate. Such a thoughtful answer. And there's so much there, but I've taken up so much for your time. So I'd, I'll, I'll just wrap up with a, a question uh, about Canada. Oftentimes, Canadians pride themselves on the stability of our democratic system. One expression is the ability of elected governments to implement their programs through our Westminster model without the kind of gridlock that we see in the U.S. congressional system. Yet at the same time, we see parties forming government with a third of the popular vote. We have something like one third of voters consistently not participating in our elections. We have parties winning five or 10% of the popular vote and not finding representation in our parliamentary system. Is there a trade-off between political efficiency and political representation? And how should we think about those trade-offs and what they might mean for people, for how people rather come to think about our democracy? You'll be shocked to hear that I am not an expert on 180 plus countries and generally very reluctant to lecture people about countries which they clearly know much better than, than I do. So forgive me if I confine myself to a more abstract claim that, however, tries to respond to, to what you brought up. So I think it is it is true that in many democracies around the world, we have seen a tendency of fragmentation. I mean, we can think of democracies where you now easily have up to 20 parties in, in, in parliament, where it can take you know, many months, sometimes even years, to form you know, halfway coherent coalitions, where there is a sense that, look, the system isn't, isn't working terribly well because you, know, you, you, you cannot get to any level of effectiveness because everything has slowed down because of these, because of these new forms of fragmentation. And we certainly have colleagues in, let's say, comparative politics, who actually, when they think about, you know, what are real indications of crisis, would, for instance, put uh, sort of a, a sort of new uh, instability in party systems among the top reasons that they are worried. And they say, look, don't get hung up on Trump and all these individuals. It's these underlying structural structural factors that we should be much more worried worried about. My view on this is that yes, fragmentation can life can make life more difficult. There's no there's no doubt about it. But in certain ways, uh, we also can turn back the clock and and pretend that you know certain groups which are now present, certain interests, ideas, even identities which we talked about earlier, which are now you know much more articulate, uh, where people make demands, that we could simply magically make that all go away. Because I think that's a question of justice that's also profoundly anti-democratic to say, oh, let's just go back to a supposedly simpler age where some people de facto have no have no voice. So the perhaps not terribly satisfying answer in the end is that, look, we're still learning how to deal with more fragmentation. Um, again, it's a question of how you do this. It's, it's not that, you know, the thing itself is necessarily a reason to think that we're all doomed. And I think occasionally we should perhaps reward those who really have mastered the art of compromise and who can sort of really put together coalitions that that in the end are, you know, stable, including coalitions that have defeated sitting right-wing populists. I mean, it's a complicated story, but for shorthand, let me mention Israel in this in this context and say that look, this is also maybe maybe part of the calling of a really good really good politician. 
that you know that's far too simplistic as an answer i i concede but i hope it's not entirely meaningless no there's a lot of insight there as there is in the book democracy rules jan werner muller thank you so much for joining us today at hub dialogues thanks for having me Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Maybe it expanded your horizons, opened your mind to some new thinking and ideas. Please don't forget to share this episode with your friends and family. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating and review. That would be greatly appreciated. I'm the Hub's executive director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's editor-at-large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. Our audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Mata. Thanks for listening. <laughs>